Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This presentation is a recording of a Lunch at the Library program presented virtually on April 7, 2021. Library Director Pat Leach discusses a selection of books from the American Library Association's 2020 Notable Books List. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. I'm feeling a little bit of pressure because I there are guests from far away and people who aren't in my family, really? which isn't you, my usual audience. So, uh, but I'm, I'm but I'm pretty excited about that. So, hooray for that! I want to begin my presentation by thanking all of the members of NLHA, which stands for Nebraska Literary Heritage Association. NLHA is the group that is part of the foundation for Lincoln City Libraries. They provide private support in many ways for the Jane Pope Geske Heritage Room of Nebraska Authors, which is here where I am in Bennett Martin Public Library in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's a unique service and one that we're very proud of. And so I'm very pleased to have that group called NLHA that has a particular place in their hearts for the Heritage Room. A little bit about my plan for today. I will be talking about the 2020 American Library Association Notable Books List. It's about 25 books, and I have chosen seven or eight that seem kind of the most generally appealing, maybe not the best known books on the list to share with you today. If we have time at the end of our time together, uh, then maybe we can have some conversation about some of the books I didn't choose to talk about for today. I started reading the books off of this list about in about 1990. So I've been doing this now for 30 years. So every year a new list comes out from the American Library Association, about 25 books, fiction, nonfiction, and a couple of poetry. And I typically review these on the air for all about books. And then typically I do a few talks like this where I kind of run down the list and share some of the books that I think are most generally appealing or frankly that I, Sometimes it's just the ones I like the best, but it's also ones that I think a lot of people would be interested in. A little bit of background about me as a reader. I'm not an English major. I'm not an English professor as a result. I read kind of as a conversationalist. So what I'm thinking as I'm reading a book often is, who do I want to talk with about this book? Uh, what is it about this that is appealing to me that I could see wanting to chat with someone else about? I think about things like, does a novel ring true? Uh, does it lead me to think about something differently? Does it have a character that I love? You know, I might be vaguely aware of something like symbols or metaphors, but in general, what I'm looking for is a character that I can trust. The novels from this list are generally of a very high caliber. They're almost always written well, and this has spoiled me. Uh, it means that I have pretty high standards often. When I say that something's written well, often what I mean is that it's written in such a way you don't even notice the author being there. It's just that good. Uh, sometimes it means that the author has a vocabulary that has expanded mine, which I always appreciate. Or it might just be the way they constructed the plot or pulled my attention somewhere. There are a variety of things that that can mean. But of these three novels, um, of today's novels I want to talk about, the first is Dominicana by Angie Cruz. This novel is uh, about a young woman, Ana Concion from the Dominican Republic. So she uh, comes to New York at the age of 15. It's the 1960s. She's newly married to a man named Juan Ruiz. He's 32 to her 15. Anna's mother has had Juan in mind 
as her husband for years because she believed that he had the best the best likelihood of making it good in the US and thus being able to bring the rest of the family to the United States. So Anna has all these adjustments. She had lived in a very rural area of the Dominican Republic. In New York, she's often alone in their apartment, looking out the window. Juan installs in her this sense of fear of what's outside. And he also basically wants her isolated. So he becomes, eventually he becomes physically abusive. And what's clear to the reader is that Juan is engaged in in enterprises that really seem on the edge. So for instance, he sells suits, men's suits from home. They're very likely stolen. He's having an affair with his supervisor at work. He loaned money to a friend's wife and she breaches the uh, confidence that Anna places in her. And yet Anna soldiers on. She doesn't want to let her family down. And her eventual pregnancy then seals her to Juan and his family. The mid-60s were a time of a lot of political upheaval in the Dominican Republic, and both of their families get swept up in the difficulties there. When Juan returns to the Dominican Republic to take care of some business, Anna is sort of able to come into her own with the help of his brother. She cooks, um, she learns a little bit of the tailoring trade. She becomes a a cook and has a sort of pop-up business for working people. The two of them, frankly, fall in love. But then when Juan returns, Anna has some really difficult choices to make. So this is, you know, partly a coming-of-age story. It's also a classic migrant story. And I found this interesting in that, you know, there's been some controversy recently about the book American Dirt about a Mexican migrant family. And the controversy had to do with the author not having lived that experience. In the case of this book, um, Anna Cruz based it on her mother's own experiences. And so uh, in an interview, I'm just going to quote from an interview where she says, my novel was inspired by my mother's story. She immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s and was married off to a man twice her age by her parents who had hoped the marriage would secure visas for all the family. This was a true story told countless times in some version throughout my formative years. And when I asked questions to deepen my understanding of that experience, it exposed all kinds of incoherence. So again, she based this on her family. Uh, She did say that the best thing was when her mother read it and said it it wasn't her story exactly, but it could have been her story. Anna, as I mentioned, suffers from the isolating impact of domestic abuse, but in a key scene, uh, Juan hits her in full view of her family and his, and that begins to change things. Now, I mentioned earlier that I really prefer a story that has a very strong character and character development, and this one has that. And I also love that this book has really lively language. It's told in Anna's voice. She's somewhat naive and uneducated, but she exercises a pretty sly eye for observation. So I don't know whether this is more an immigration story or a coming of age story. I think it serves well as both. Um, I was struck that um, the author, Angie Cruz, said that a lot of people reached out to her about the domestic abuse portion of this book, that they found it resonated with their own stories. And as often is the case with the novels that are on the notable books list, this one strikes me as being tailor-made for book groups. Um, There's a lot to be learned from this particular place and time of the setting, but really even more to be explored in the timeless aspects from domestic abuse to friendship to loyalty to getting along with a strong-willed mother. So that one is Dominicana by Angie Cruz. The next book I want to talk about is 
Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. It got a lot of attention when it came out as it was, I believe, a winner of the Booker Prize. And um, this is her eighth book. She's a Nigerian British woman. And this book is set in England. As I was reading this book, I was continuing to think about a question that we ask a lot in the library world. So um, as a librarian, when I read, I'm partly reading just for myself, but I'm also reading, thinking, who is the audience for this book? So as I was reading Girl, Woman, Other, I was very much thinking, who are the people I know who would want to read this book? So you can listen and then we can talk about who would be the likely audience here. This book is written in a series of chapters, four groups of three, and each of those focuses on one black or mixed race British woman. And there's an interesting use, or maybe I would call it non-use of punctuation in this book. It doesn't have periods, but the words are arranged on the page so that there's enough white space and uh, the arrangement makes it easy to follow. Something about this kind of writing seemed less formal and more immediate. I found it really worked well for this story. So she has this way of writing that makes the most of prose. She writes in poetry as well, um, but so it's in prose, but it doesn't founder under a whole lot of extra weight. So with each person's story comes an exploration of feminism and how it's evolved over generations. And it's kind of exemplified by the first two characters, Emma, who is a black playwright about to have a production at the prestigious National Theater. So after a lot of years feeling on the outskirts, she feels like she's finally arrived. Then in contrast comes her daughter, Yaz, uh, raised by this remarkable group of friends that Alma kind of had to gather together so that she could succeed as a single parent. And Yaz turns a pretty cynical eye on her mother, sometimes a slightly patronizing eye. And her mom seems to her quite behind the times in terms of 21st century gender. So the characters proceed from there with various degrees of relationship among them, a lot of mother-daughter pairs, you know, sometimes with this many characters uh, commenting, it's hard to really feel like, like there's a sense of story. In this case, she does manage to convey that, but there is a whole lot of intermingling. And one of my favorite things then is when one character comes in to describe what another character has told you and fills in a lot of those gaps. So what rang true to me about this book is how all of these things happened in connection to each other. And it was always tied to the people around there. So the impact of parents and upbringing, even as husbands, lovers, and others shaped important periods. Uh, she creates this way of people talking about that that felt really authentic to me. Um, one reviewer noted in this book, often the turn of a chapter flips us into the unexpected depths of a character we've only met in passing. And she does such a great job of creating a clear persona for each, for their time, for the place that became their home, and for the way that they grow into themselves. As the book nears its end, in one of the final chapters, everybody's gathered together, or almost everybody, at a reception for this play that is going to be put on by the National Theater. And so at its, and at, at its very end, Avarista tries up a, a loose end. I don't think it's a spoiler that I'm about to share with you what the final sentences are. They simply are, this is not about feeling something or about speaking words. This is about being together. And I love that line about reading because as I said at the start, I, I read more as a conversationalist. I think, who am I gonna wanna talk to about this? 
when we think, for instance, about our libraries, one book, one Lincoln program, what we're thinking about is creating a community conversation that's about books. And so I love the way this book is structured, largely around conversation, largely around that whole thing of this is about being together. And of this book, I would also say perfect book group title. Uh, so many relationships, so many personalities, so many universal themes. And then this one is interesting in that it's deeply explored in the setting of Great Britain and this specific group of people who are black or mixed race, living a variety of sexual orientations. And with this book, Evaristo became the first black female winner of England's prestigious Booker Prize. And in interviews, she noted that British black women writers seem just now coming into their own. And I would say that this book completely supports that observation. Lanny, my next book, I made, I made a, a handwritten note on my own notes that says quirky books, often British. So this is uh, the book that maybe would win the prize this year for a quirky book. I was introduced to this author, Max Porter, through another notable from a few years ago called Grief is a Thing with Feathers. Um, Lanny, in this case, is the name of a boy who lives in, in a contemporary English village. His parents are outsiders there. They're urbanites who craved a country life. So his dad commutes into the city daily to do financial work. His mother is a former actress who is working on a really gory mystery novel. Lanny is a really unusual boy and doesn't care much what other people think of him. He's kind to everyone. He's often roaming around town singing to himself. He loves to spend time in nature and loves to pick up little interesting items. And really with, with just that much, this could have been a really interesting novel, but there's an additional interesting character here called Dead Papa Toothwart, an ancient but ageless mythical figure from the earth. And he can take the form of trees and other plants or creatures, and he can wreak havoc. So he is always paying attention to voices in the village. And he pays particular attention to Lanny in whom he recognizes something that's apart from all the others. Dead Papa Toothwort rises up from time to time to make mischief. And this book opens with Dead Papa Toothwort and I would warn you that if you choose to read this book and you're looking for a straightforward entry into this novel, that part might seem like a bit of a slog, but it's worth getting through those first pages. So both Lanny and Dead Papa Toothwort are rooted in the soil of the earth, but in really different ways. So Max Porter sets this up and then Lanny goes missing. And the media spectacle that ensues reveals really the ugly underside of the village and most of the people in it. So eventually the artist who teaches Lanny uh, becomes a prime suspect and he's attacked. Lanny's parents' abilities in parenting are questioned, but eventually that story starts to grow cold. And I don't wanna to give too much away here, but throughout the, story, throughout the story, I just clung to the belief that Max Porter would not have created this wonderful character of Lanny only to kill him. So I was sure that Max Porter wouldn't do this to his readers. I won't tell you what happened. So this book was long listed for the Booker Prize. It is so well done in so many ways. Max Porter uses really vivid language to describe nature and root both Lanny and dead Papa Toothwort in the natural world. He writes so well about that, especially about trees. And I find myself often enjoying 
books by non-American English speakers because often they use vocabulary that's not familiar to me. So I learned new words like Podgy and Burke. And I was reminded of one of my favorites, Gormless. Among the word-rich features of this book is that dead Papa Toothwort, listen, Toothwort listens in on conversations all the time. And so throughout the book, there are just these little italicized, um, kind of wavy, overheard conversations from dead Papa Toothwort. And a lot of those are pretty hilarious, frankly. This is similar to his previous novel in that it's a story set in reality about a family with the usual complications and then introduces a completely fantastic character. And Porter really excels at having people speak in their own distinctive voices. So in the first section, we get to know Lanny actually only by how other people talk about him. And I was really taken a lot by the voice of his dad, who is just not somebody who is, he, well, he's very straightforward. He's very much about numbers. He's not somebody who's very whimsical whatsoever. I will also note with Lanny, it's only 210 pages and it has a lot of white space. And as readers, we all get to have our preferences. I prefer a short book with a lot of white space, frankly. There's something about reading through the books on this list that it's almost like doing a to-do list. So I'm always really happy when I get a mark one off, which doesn't always mean that I'm happy when a book ends. This is really one of the most unusual uh, missing child stories I've read. And really, while you might be compelled to just read quickly so you get to the conclusion, I, I think that you could probably do this book if you have an open weekend. I realize many of you never have open weekends, but if you do, to set aside some time so that you can read and savor this book from its opening with Dead Papa Toothwort to its end with two men who are drawing the woods that are around them. Now, some of you who are mostly fiction readers might be sad that I'm about now to move into the nonfiction, but if we have time at the end, I certainly will be happy to answer questions if you have uh, questions or comments about uh, some of the other books on the fiction part of the list. One of the issues I always have when I'm reviewing and evaluating nonfiction is that I'm, I'm not an expert on any of the topics that, I, that, are, that are being explored here. So um, re I'm reviewing these as my experience as a reader. And I do typically do some research and checking to see if any experts weighed in on the, um, the validity of the observations or the validity of the conclusions that the authors uh, make. But usually what I ask uh, about a nonfiction book is, did I learn something new? Was it in context? Was it written in a way that I looked forward to reading the book? Um, and could I see why it mattered? And you know, as I looked over the four books that i I guess it might be five uh, books that I pulled together in the nonfiction. They're all books where the author very much inserts um, themselves into the writing. So kind of creative nonfiction in the sense of creating a narrative out of the topic. Sometimes I think that uh, people who are primarily fiction readers who don't like nonfiction think of it as being really dry. My take on that is that all of these books, as I would say, have lots of milk to go on the cornflakes. This first one, Elderhood, is subtitled Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. And really, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. It's a great example of creative nonfiction. So Aronson waves in together her personal story of becoming a doctor and then choosing to treat old people. And then she braids in a whole lot of her views about how traditional medicine often fails older patients by using a lot of the stories of the people she's treated. 
And so by the end of the book, she's created a series of ideas, presented a whole series of ideas about how to make medical treatment for old people better. So the title, Elderhood, is her suggestion for the best name of the period of life that follows childhood and adulthood. And statistically, a lot of the American population are in the midst of elderhood and their treatment, their medical treatment, constitutes a large portion of the total amount spent on medicine in this country. So elderhood reminds me of the book Being Mortal, which was a one book, one Lincoln suggestion a few years ago. Um, that author, Atul Gawande, is another physician who writes really well for a lay audience. In that book, he talks about questions we should ask as people approach the end of life. And many of the questions that he wrote in that book also apply to elderhood. Being Mortal is also surprisingly readable. Aronson didn't set out to be a geriatrician. In the course of her medical training, she did realize that she wanted to go into a specialty where she had a good deal of interactions with patients and a lot of variety. And she notes the irony that most of the most lucrative specialties in medicine are those that involve surgery with more and more and more specialization, but less and less interaction with the patients themselves. Aronson defines elderhood as a period beginning at about age 60. And she notes that's a very wide swath of the population and that treating young old is a lot different than treating those who might be called old old. So I read this part of, partly from the view of somebody who's young old and also um, with parents who are now likely to be considered old old. And so I read a lot of her stories you know, with them in mind. And in an interview, she said, no one wants to think about aging. We've made progress about other prejudices, but one that has endured is ageism. And I think that point of view informs a lot of this book. She demonstrates over and over how much she enjoys her patients and how their treatment is impacted by her approach, which has more to do with overall good health and well-being than it does with just curing one disease or isolating a particular condition. So she uses stories of those patients to illustrate weaknesses in medicine for old people. And one of the most common weaknesses has to do with prescription drugs, that they're seldom tested on old, old people, and yet many are prescribed for people in that age category. And prescriptions may have much different side effects in that population. So she describes several, well, at least a couple that I recall, cases where an otherwise very healthy adult got sick just seemingly all of a sudden. And as Aronson went back and got a history of prescriptions, a prescription changed or was added or was taken away at just about the time that the person took the turn. And it's part of her ability to listen and pay a lot of attention to the full information that allows her to address that. And then also a lot gets missed when people see a series of specialists who don't communicate with each other very much. And so her case for more doctors to be geriatricians is based on the benefits that she enjoys, seeing a person as more of a whole person, thinking about their overall health, that usually places them within the context of the family and the other people near them. I was intrigued that she makes house calls and she notes how much is learned when you visit someone's home, which absolutely makes sense to me. And also just how much easier it is for an older patient who may be ailing not to have to leave the house. So over and over, she talks about how most medical routines are set up for young people. An interesting part of this book is that at a certain point, she experiences terrible burnout. 
And she really doesn't shy away from describing the dark days. Uh, she had to move away from being a geriatrician for a while and figure out how to come back without getting bogged down. Now, I'm often drawn to books like this because I love how science and people interact. And so in this case, I get to know her worldview and learning some of her vocabulary from the science of medicine. And one of those small examples is I made a note that Aronson notes that people are diagnosed with a particular disease, but illness is a word for how that disease plays out in an individual. I didn't know that distinction, so I learned something. I also really do hold a special place in my heart for books about medicine written by doctors who write well. I mentioned that earlier. There's really something compelling about the mix of medicine and the humanities. You know, I think we all hope that for ourselves and especially for our loved ones, we would be treated by somebody like Dr. Aronson who clearly knows both how to listen and how to respond medically. And the story of how she came to do that is what this book, Elderhood, is all about. So this book, The Yellow House by Sarah Broom, did get some attention. It was on the New York Times bestseller list as it shows here, and it was one of their best books of the year uh, for 2019. And I believe it won a National Book Award as well. As a journalist and a writer, it took her years to write this book, which is about New Orleans. So it includes the stories of her own family in New Orleans and a lot, a lot of historical research about the city and land use in East New Orleans where the yellow house of the title was built. So she tells this book in four what she calls movements. And the first is about her grandparents and then parents, how they all came together. And she highlights the way that her mother's mother and then her mother both loved beautiful things and created homes that incorporated their sense of a good place. Um, some aspects of this section aren't really well established because records for black people weren't kept as thoroughly as the records for white people. What I appreciate in this part of the book were the stories that Sarah Broom got from her family about various personalities. And I think the book is often at its best when she's talking about the various members of her family. Uh, so for instance, um, her mother's first wife, Webb, died tragically young, but she was able to use his life insurance money to buy a house on Wilson Street in East New Orleans. She was 19 years old and the first in her family to own a home. The house wasn't yellow yet, that came later, and she moved into the house just after her marriage to Simon Broom, who was Sarah's father. Now Sarah herself doesn't enter the book until page 101. And by that time, her father has died, and she describes herself as the babyest in her family. She's the youngest of 12 children. And I felt the book sort of pick up pace at that point. Uh, she has a lot of people to incorporate into this story and includes all of the children there, also the neighbors. There's a real child sense of what a neighborhood is like, what the rhythm of her mother's work is like. So throughout this memoir, she braids her own story with that of New Orleans. And it's often a story of floods, frankly, especially in the part of town where they live. So the house floods terribly in the 1960s and must largely be rebuilt at that time. You know, at a certain point, they realize, you know, the yellow house is really no longer nice. And they realize, as her mother says, that their phrase is not everyone is comfortable there. So when Hurricane Katrina comes, which is the third movement, we're aware that the yellow house is in danger. And indeed, after Katrina, it's demolished and Sarah helps her mother with the paperwork for a grant that would allow her to buy another property. And all told that process takes 11 years. Uh, one of what's interesting is that one of her brothers 
goes back to that lot where the yellow house was and keeps it mown. He sort of keeps it claimed for their family. Broom ends up living in several places. Uh, she ends up living in New York, uh, writing for Oprah Winfrey's O Magazine. She lives for a while in Burundi. And always there's this tie to New Orleans. And she ends up moving back there and works for Mayor Ray Nagin for a while. She leaves, but then she goes back. So in the final movement, which she calls Investigation, she returns in 2011, and she takes up residence in an apartment on the busiest corner of the French Quarter. And she continues digging into the history of the city, always in ways that connect that history to her family's history. And she realizes how different her experiences of the city are from those who stayed in New Orleans after Katrina. And sometimes they lead, I mean, sometimes people question her about her right to tell the story. Uh, she was asked, for whom did she write this? And she said, for her nieces and nephews. But I think she also wrote it, frankly, for people like me, people who have visited New Orleans quite a few times and really love it. But her book, The Yellow House, gives a picture of the people who work in the coffee shops and restaurants of the French Quarter, other people who are engaged in the industry of the city, like her father and brother, and they don't visit those tourist places. So I really won't see New Orleans the same way when I go back. And then I was also thinking that there's something about this book that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Um, on the one hand, there's this clear chronology of time in its organization, but because there are so many voices of her siblings and others, it's kind of a messy book in a way that seemed just right. So often those people are looking back on events or trying to make sense now of what happened before. So her path isn't necessarily straight or level. In her story, you really do see countless impacts of race and class and geography and family. So I think that for people who are maybe seeking a book that would give them a background or understanding of the history of black people in the United States, um, Broom really works the miracle of sharing a lot of that history overall by writing this memoir that's really about her family and herself. Then um, this book, Thick, and other essays by Tressie McMillan Cottom is another one that gives a view into situations to do with African-American people in the United States now. The back page blurb of this book wrote, a striking and daring collection described by best-selling author Roxane Gay as transgressive, provocative, and brilliant. Thick is lighting a bolder conversation on politics and pop culture alike through the lens of modern black feminism. So at the time I read this was last summer um, when, there were, when there were a lot of Black Lives Matter activities going on. And the New York Times bestseller list at that time had a lot of books addressing the issue. And this one was not on it, but it really, it ought to have been. These are, I always note how many pages, 224 pages and eight essays that lay out some of the biggest issues in Black feminism. And it does so in a way that combines her personal experiences with, with some of the biggest issues. And she's able to do that because she's a sociologist. She has expertise in that. So I often wonder why the title. So in this case, um, it kind of comes from two directions. One is that one night in a bar, she's sitting next to a man who, who turns to her and says something along the lines of, you are thick, your hair's thick, you're thick, you're just thick. And it also has a meaning in sociology. So in sociology, thick description is defined as intensive, small-scale, dense descriptions of social life from observations 
through which broader cultural interpretations and generalizations can be made. She is such a good writer that this combination of observations with the bigger picture really works well. And she really draws a distinction in this book between what she refers to as personal essays, and I love personal essays. Um, she sees these as more than personal essays. I'm so accustomed to reading personal essays that I kind of start off reading this book a little bit too quickly and shallowly. So I went back and reminded myself to read a little bit more slowly. And really I did find them so engaging and readable that sometimes I missed how elegantly she had set up the argument. Uh, she has a very uh, sharp and strong and vibrant presence on social media. And she does share a podcast with Roxanne Gay, who is from Nebraska, who some of you may know about. Um, I learned a lot from this book. And I'm suggesting this title to, to people partly because I, as a white person, learned a lot. And frankly, I squirmed quite a bit. So she talks about how class and skin color form a potent combination with white Americans dependent on a social structure that keeps them, white people at the top, by keeping others at the bottom. And so she, she brings this forward in various ways. For instance, she uh, explores a story where she attended a gathering in 2007 in support of candidate Barack Obama in a neighborhood of Myers Park in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she notes that this neighborhood had really tight racial covenants for years, where she would not have been allowed to live there, and that its public schools function sort of like private schools. They're good and they're well-funded. And they perpetuate the affluence of white people who live there. Um, there's a really interesting essay on black people as consumers. And she uh, reflects on a beautiful cape and pair of boots that her mother bought. And then her mother wore them to essentially go to school and advocate on her daughter's behalf. And so Cotton kind of reflects on this purchase and the role it played for them. I often mark excerpts as I read, kind of thinking I might want to share an excerpt with somebody. And in this book, there are a lot of excerpts that give a sense for her writing. But in all of these essays, she's connecting it so much that an excerpt doesn't really do justice to that. Throughout this book, she also notes that she doesn't fall into very common categories. She's an academic, and yet she's Black and female. Um, she's educated, and yet uh, in, interacts with many people who are not but she is so good at asking questions. And she uh, provides a lot of footnotes at the end of the book that kind of document that academically she's got some, she definitely has credentials and some of those are little essays on their own. But I don't say that so that you would think, oh, this is gonna be a very academic book. It's not, it's very personal, it's very smart. And I think the note that I made to myself is that um, it's a soupy mix that brought forth a book that entertains and engages even as it educates, pokes, and prods. I see we're getting low on time. I have two more books left. One of them is this one, Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves by Franz DeWall. Um, again, people sometimes think of nonfiction as dry, but this book is not dry. It is not dry, it is not dull. Uh, Franz DeWall is a primatologist and he's a professor emeritus at Emory University. He used to run a primate research center. So he spent his whole career making scientific observations about primates and primate communities. And really, he's a first-rate storyteller. So nearly every scientific concept that he brings forward uh, comes from a story of something that he observed. And the great theme of this book is that observations of emotions in animals are so similar to observations of emotions in humans that it simply makes 
sense to believe that animals have emotions. You know, for years, animal scientists insisted that animals not be anthropomorphized, not be treated like people. But Dewal's thesis is that there are measurable scientific observations that lead us to see that differently. So a distinction that I learned in this book is between emotion and feeling. So Dewal sets out emotions as physically expressed feelings, experiences that can be seen in our facial expression, in our body temperature, in our vocalization, in our posture. That's emotion. Then feelings in contrast are what we think and how we interpret those. So Dewal seems to say that we probably can't know animal feelings, but emotions, yes. Those are physical and observable. The book's title, Mama's Last Hug, refers to an interaction that uh, was taped and went viral where uh, an old female primate was on her deathbed and a man who had done a lot of research with her years before went to visit her and she very obviously reached out to put her arms around him. And that sort of sets the tone then for this whole book. I would say Dewal has not very much patience for people who think that human beings get to be too much in their own categories. He thinks, you know, people add a lot of cognition and language, but he keeps reminding people that their experience is similar to, to that of animals, and there's no shame in that. As I mentioned, he is a star storyteller. Uh, a few times I thought maybe he was going a little too far in some of his um, interpretations, but I think you want that in a nonfiction book. You want something that challenges you and makes you think. So what I think works well in this book is that he would do this perfect progression from sharing a story to what he observed. And often that's something that would be new to the reader. Then he makes sense of the observation in terms of his expertise as a primatologist. And then finally, he adds a little something extra that connects the animal behavior to human behaviors in some remarkably convincing ways. And he does poke fun at both animals and humans. Um, this was a book that over and over, I wish that I would have somebody nearby so I could interrupt whatever they're doing to say, hey, I want to read you this book or hey, listen to this. And it did one of my favorite things that a book does, which frankly, it made me see my world differently. So I live with cats and dogs and Mama's Last Hug made me kind of watch them in a very different way. And I think challenging our everyday point of view is one of the very best things that books can do for us. And Mama's Last Hug did that for me. The last book I want to talk about from this list is Late Migrations by Margaret Renkel. And, you know, I don't say this about a lot of books, but I wish I had written this book. Um, I really only thought that about one other book, which was Ted Kuzer's Local Wonders, which also happens to be a, a collection of essays. So in this book, there are these very short essays, a lot of white space on the page, which you know I like. So there are these short memoirs of her growing up in Alabama, and those are in the book in chronological order, but interspersed with those are other little essays. Uh, many of them are about the birds and backyard mammals that she observes in her own yard in Nashville, Tennessee. And from time to time, she will also include a family story told by a family member recalling an event such as the day she was born. And so it sort of seems like this random mashup of all of these things, but actually by the book's end, it, it is a wonderful memoir uh, that gives both a sense of her growing up and a sense of who she is now. I've already mentioned plenty of white space, short books, short chapters, wide margins, short paragraphs. I find that when I read, I really appreciate a break. 
Uh, sometimes that's because a book is so technical and has so much information, but a lot of times it's because like in late migrations, there's just so much food for thought and it gives you a chance to just pause before going on. And, you know, I have a feeling that this might not appeal to people who really like a straightforward story, but I found that it works really well. Renkel describes that the process of putting this book together was that for whatever reason, she found herself writing all these mini essays. And then in talking with her editor, they realized this could become a book. And so the challenge was in what order do you put them? And so she ended up doing this mix of stories about her upbringing run in order, the other nature and family stories don't necessarily. Again, this was a book that I wanted to read aloud to the people around me. I'm also a bird person, and I know it's not easy to write about wild creatures without getting either too romantic or too cynical or too technical or too meaningful. And I just sensed over and over that she hit just the right note. She does turn a clear eye on what it's like to be raised by a mother who suffers from depression. And then as the essays go along, she turns an equally clear eye on the grief of losing both her father and then her mother. The art on the cover, and then there is other art within the book, was done by her brother. And they underscore, again, that sense of observation and careful depiction. So I've been recommending this to a, a, a wide swath of my friends, um, both about nature and because of that cycle of life, birth to death. You know, you might think that these just being essays would make a tone of separation. But really, I began to feel just a deep sense of connection among all of them instead in this book. All in all, this is one of my favorite memoirs recently, and, and I read quite a few memoirs. You know, I would mention that sometimes um, I, I think maybe I'm tired of reading this notable books list every year. You know, after 30 years, maybe it's trying to do something new. But what I like about it is that it really does get me out of my reading ruts or maybe my reading grooves. I'm not sure what we'll call them. It underscores books I want to read anyway, and often it brings up a a book I hadn't heard of that is one of the best I've ever read. And so I would encourage you to choose a discipline kind of like this. Maybe not a whole list. I get it that you might not want to choose a list of 25 items, um, but maybe the mystery prize winners or something such as that. Um, maybe the Newberry or Caldecott books for children or Coretta Scott King Awards, something out of your usual. And over the course of years, then it, it becomes to be a really rewarding experience. One of my themes recently, you might have heard me mention this before, is I want to make sure that we're not taking literacy for granted. Um, there are so many times when somebody says, I read this book and it changed my life. I read this article and I'm seeing something completely different now. And that's really powerful. And it happens really day after day in our country. And I want always for us to be thinking, who was it who taught us to read? And what is it like to live in a country where everybody, male and female, is taught to read and expected to read? We need to value that and make sure that that continues to be part of the life of us in our country. In concluding, I want to thank NLHA again for all you do for the Heritage Room and for uh, Nebraska authors. And, you know, when I think about what the public library is meant to do, it's really meant to build up our community of readers, which is a remarkably broad and inclusive group. So in closing, I want to thank you for being part of the reading community today and for being part of this and for, for joining us for this. So thank you for that. And I do believe that now Diane Wilson from the Heritage Room has a few concluding comments. Well, thanks, Pat. Yeah, my comments will be brief. Um, I just wanted to thank everybody for attending today and uh, invite you up to visit the Heritage Room if you 
never been here or if you just want to be back, we're open Tuesday through Friday from noon to 3 p.m. and Sundays from 2 to 5 p.m. And I wanted to thank the Foundation for Lincoln City Libraries and NLHA who support the Heritage Room and make events like this possible. So thanks everybody for being here. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. You can find a wide selection of our podcasts of book talks and other programs at lincolnlibraries.org slash category slash podcasts. Mm-hmm.